begin our sermon with prayer. Lord God, you are merciful and tender-hearted, abounding in love and faithfulness. Turn to us in our anguish over sin and hear our cry for mercy, that we may be at peace through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Psalm 6. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am fading away. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are trembling and my soul is terrified. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver my soul. Save me because of your mercy. For in death no one remembers you. In the grave who praises you? I'm worn out from my groaning. I flood my bed all night long. With my tears I drench my couch. My eyes are blurred by sorrow. They are worn out because of all my foes. Turn away from me, all you evildoers, because the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. They will be put to shame. All my enemies will be terrified. They will turn back. They will be put to shame in an instant. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Abraham is considered the father of believers. He is held up as the epitome example of faith. And what faith? Think about the contradiction. God had waited till he was in his 90s to give him the son Isaac. He had promised him that all nations would be blessed through this kid. It was clear the Savior was coming through this kid. And then God says, now go kill him. What? Brothers and sisters in Christ, when God tests us, it's not so that he can find out something about us. Think about it. God knows everything. He's all-knowing. He knows every decision you could make and every decision you are going to make and the outcome of everything. God knows all. He's all-knowing. Know when God tests us, it's for our benefit. And this was to benefit Abraham. Abraham has a contradiction. First, God says all nations are going to be blessed by this kid. Now he says, go kill him. So what does Abraham do? Did you notice how I emphasized in the reading, we will be back. Abraham had faith. He knew he was going to be back with his son, even though he had every intentions of killing him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that was the test. God told him not to kill his son. In fact, the next thing that happens in Abraham's life that's recorded for us is the death of his wife. We already saw Abraham believed in the resurrection because he said those words before he went to sacrifice his son to his servants. We will be back. Now, Abraham had a strong faith in, but you know what? If you read the book of Genesis, you find that Abraham has times when he just has outstanding role model faith. And then other times when he really is lousy at it. Take, for example, God calls him to leave everything and to go roam as a nomad in Canaan. And that's the promised land. But then a drought comes and Abraham quits trusting in God's protection and he books it down to Egypt. Oh, and while he's down in Egypt, you know, his wife's kind of a hottie, so he says, lie and tell everybody you're my sister. You're a hottie. I don't want to get killed. What weak faith. He allows Pharaoh to take her into his harem and God has to intervene. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Abraham is the father of believers and he has times when he has outstanding faith and he has times when he flops miserably. And isn't that the case for you and I as well? What are we to do? Times it's like, thank you, Lord, you really gave me a strong faith. And times we go, wow, Lord, I really stunk there. That's why Jesus was tested in every way and didn't fail. 
Jesus, as true man, could feel the pains of temptation, but as true God, he was never going to fall. And the epitome example of that is when he's tempted by the devil as he's out in the desert 40 days and 40 nights. And he's credited you because he's given you faith. He's credited you and I with standing strong, with his standing up to temptation. But you know what, brothers and sisters in Christ? As Martin Luther one time said, at first it seems like God hates those who love him. For the Christian, God promises a cross. And those crosses get heavy. We get weary and burdened. The Psalms were the Old Testament hymnal. And if you went through the Isaiah Bible study with me, uh, you remember, you may remember that lots of times in Hebrew poetry and in Hebrew songs, the core, the center verse really gives you the overall theme. The center verse of Psalm 6 is, I've grown weary in my groaning. Well, kid yourself. He's complaining to the Lord. I'm so miserable. I'm even tired of groaning about my misery. And so today, as we look at our misery and how the Lord is using that, even our miseries can be tests from the Lord and they can be disciplines. We see, when you've grown weary and you're groaning, and we'll fill in the rest of the sentence. So he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger and discipline me not in your wrath. That's clunky English. We've got to recognize what he's saying. He's not saying, Lord, don't discipline me. Lord, don't rebuke me. No. He's saying, don't do it in your anger, don't do it in your wrath. Now, God's wrath and anger is not the same as human wrath and anger. God's wrath and anger is his indignation against all unholiness. Clearly there is a sin here. Clearly the psalmist David knows he needs to be disciplined from that sin. But he's saying, Lord, not in your wrath and anger against sin. He says, give me grace, O Lord, for I'm frail. Grace is undeserved gifts. It's God's undeserved love. It's the fact that he's given us a savior and has forgiven us, although we do not deserve it. Now, we want to make a distinction here. Many times, and I found out I'm about, I'm not the only pastor. All of them have had this where we have texts where I've said in a sermon, God does not punish us for our sins. He punished Christ. The punishment for sin is an eternity in hell. But God does discipline us. And every time I've had somebody after a sermon remind me, you know, well, the, the, you know, the epistle of Hebrews does talk about God disciplines us as a loving father. So in English, we theologians, Lutheran theologians, make a difference between punishment and discipline. Now, they're synonymous in English, so it's a, it's a kind of distinction that's not there in the terms themselves. But the word discipline has the word disciple in it. What's the difference? Well, you're always told as a parent, you know, when your kid's frustrating you and driving you nuts, don't, don't beat their rear end when you're angry, because that's what you'll be doing. You'll just be beating their rear end in anger. So take them out, step aside, let it sink in what's going on, and then discipline your child. Discipline in that case is not to punish, it's to curb the behavior so it doesn't happen again. So yes, God does discipline us. Now let's give an example of that. A person who decides to live a sexually promiscuous life knowing that is not what the Bible says, that God says it's a blessing, but it's a blessing he only wants to happen in marriage, goes out living that promiscuous life and gets an STD. They can bet that's a discipline from God. Not a punishment, a discipline to help curb them, to help curb them from that behavior. A person who's an alcoholic starts to suffer health impacts and ulcers and things like this. That's a discipline from God reminding them they're letting alcohol be their God. And yes, God does allow disciplines in our life. 
should be clear to us what that's about. There'll be a direct connection. And the psalmist recognizes this. So the discipline is not a punishment for our sin. It's to help us so that we struggle not to sin. A sin that has been forgiven. God has given us grace. We are weak. Left to our own devices, we're in trouble. And all we should get is hell. And so he says, Give me grace, O Lord, for I'm frail. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are terrified and my soul is greatly terrified. Yet you, O Lord, how long? The psalmist recognizes, I'm being disciplined, and he recognizes the discipline is a heavy, heavy cross. Maybe he aches so much because the discipline itself is very harsh, which would say the sin must have been very, very harsh. Or maybe he aches just, he says, my bones are terrified. Maybe he's terrified because he knows the sin he's committed has really jeopardized his relationship with God. And hence, the disciplining, not a punishment, is to keep him from doing that again. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there are lots of miseries in this life and our crosses can be heavy. And it's very important to us when we're bearing those crosses and we're growing weary from our groaning. Know the difference between God's discipline and his punishment. He uses those for your good. As we learned in our epistle lesson in Romans chapter 8, is God is for us who can be against us. God is a loving father and he does allow discipline and he does allow us to suffer the consequences of our sins at times to discipline us so that we now are empowered to struggle against that. But he has forgiven us. And so the psalmist continues, David says, turn Lord, rescue my soul, save me on account of your committed love. The Hebrew word kesed often gets translated as loving kindness. I prefer to translate it as committed love because every time it shows something. You and I in our sinful nature are not committed to God. We can only hate and despise God. And the truth of the matter is, you and I will have that blasted sinful nature until the day God rips it free from us when we go to heaven. There it is, period. So why should God love us? We struggle against him. That sinful nature hates his word. It hates God. It wants to run right back into the slavery of the devil and call that freedom. But God's committed to us. We're his creation and he loves us even though we don't deserve his love, even though we're not lovable. He's a loving God. So what is the psalmist saying here? Don't save me because I put an extra fiver in the offering plate this week. Don't save me because I took a moment to share your word with that neighbor being a pain in the neck this week. No, Lord, I don't deserve it. Simply save me because you are the God of committed love. You are the God of grace. He says, For in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol. Who will confess praises to you? It's very obvious what he's talking about here is not the souls that go to heaven. The souls that go to heaven are praising God all the time, as the angels are. So he's either got to be talking about hell, or he's talking about the grave. See, when you die, your body will be separated from your soul, and your body's going to decompose. God's going to raise it up and reunite it with your soul. Your soul's going to heaven. You believe in God. Your body remains silent. There's a wonderful point here. Our lifetime is our time to receive God's grace. When a person's life is ended, they're done. Either they're going to heaven or they're going to hell. The body does not praise God while it decomposes in the grave. His point is, Lord, save me on account of your grace. If this thing crushes me down and kills me, that's it. It's done with. I'm either in heaven praising you or whatever, but my body, is it's done. Lord, I, I still feel like there's plenty of time to share your grace with others. He says, I've grown weary in my groaning. I keep causing my bed to swim all night long. I'm dissolving my mattress in tears. Now, I think that it's scientifically impossible in one night for a human being to cry so much that their bed floats or that they completely dissolve their mattress with tears. 
He's talking in hyperbole, but he feels that miserable. He's that rotten over his sin. He feels that rotten over the things that are going on. And so he says, my eyes have swollen from exasperation. They've grown old because of all my adversaries. Now, David had lots of adversaries just in the political realm. In fact, one of his own sons rose up against him, Absalom. Let's not kid ourselves, brothers and sisters in Christ. You and I have spiritual adversaries that we cannot see. The devil, the world, and yes, I mentioned that darn sinful nature. It hates your new man, and it hates you because you are the new man. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, we too, as we suffer, as we run off into a sin, you know, I always hate that when people say, why did you do that? Well, my sinful nature doesn't need a reason to do it. It just wanted to, that's it. And then we suffer the consequences. The devil whispers in our ear using our sinful nature. God won't notice. Then we commit the sin, and then he says, God can't forgive you. How could you do such a thing? And we feel miserable like this psalmist does. What are we to do when we feel weary from our groaning? Lord, I I feel so rotten about this sin. I really hurt somebody, and I can't take it back. Ask the Lord to save you because of His grace. Know that in His grace He took on human flesh. He did not sin. He did not fall into temptation. And He has removed your sins. So we see, when you've grown weary in your groaning, know the difference between God's discipline and His punishment. Knowing that Christ was punished in your place, ask the Lord to save you because of His grace and be confident that you have received that grace. Now it's at this point this psalmist who is miserable suddenly takes a change in thought. Everything turns upbeat. Depart from me, all you troublemakers, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Who are troublemakers? Oh, they can be the politically correct crowd today that, that uh, wants, to, wants to make you sound like you hate everybody and a racist, homophobe, bigot because you're a Christian or what, whatever terms they use. Those people that want to silence your freedom of religion and your freedom of speech and will accuse you of things that aren't even true. But again, don't forget, there are dark forces There's the devil and his demons. And boy, do they cause trouble in your life. The devil's always throwing temptations out on you. His one goal, and he doesn't care how he gets it to happen, his one goal is to get you to forsake your Lord. All he has to do is get you to fall asleep. You know, quit coming to the Word for a while. Boom! And then he can pounce like a lion on sleeping prey. But brothers and sisters of Christ, do you hear that confidence? Depart from me, all you troublemakers, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. And he continues, the Lord has heard my plead for mercy. And actually, the Hebrew tense here is he does this over and over again. Over and over again, the Lord receives my prayer. How is the psalmist going from the depths of woe suddenly to such happy joy? It's because he knows In David's case, his Savior was coming, who would live in his place, die in his place, and remove his sin. In your and my case, we know 2,000 years ago, God took on human flesh, lived in our place, has credited us with his perfect obedience, and has removed our sin. And that is important, because that means God, God has removed the barrier that kept him from answering our prayers. Yes, when you're miserable, think about your groaning. Think about the misery. Think about your need for absolution. And be confident that God, in His grace, hears your prayer. And He doesn't just hear your prayer. God knows all things. He's going to answer it in which way is best for you. Sometimes, one of the reasons why God allows hardship to come upon us is simply to remind us to pray to Him. To take it to the Lord in prayer. And when you take it to the Lord in prayer, while you're praying, remember, your Savior has removed the barrier of your sin. You're petitioning your heavenly daddy who knows what's best. 
And he's going to answer in his perfect timing with the perfect answer in the way that's going to keep you in your faith. That's going to keep you in your eternal salvation. As we heard in our epistle lesson, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so the psalmist wraps it up with verse 10 saying, they will be ashamed and all my enemies will be terrified greatly. They will turn back and they will suddenly be ashamed. There are two ways that God brings our enemies to shame. Because if somebody hates you because you are a believer, because you're Jesus' little lamb, they are truly God's enemy. The one way he does it is, again, the epitome example is this guy named Saul who's studying to be one of the great rabbis under the great rabbi Gamaliel and he's got a zeal and he's hunting down Christians and he's bringing them back to be killed. And he's on his way to Damascus and Jesus converts him and makes him the Apostle Paul who will write roughly 70% of the New Testament. Saul lived his life knowing what he was and thankful for God's grace. Ashamed of what he had been, and yet that shame made him so grateful for the salvation he'd been given and made him willing to endure even being stoned, flogged, and beaten to bring one more soul to the Lord. It made that grace so precious to him. The other way God brings his enemies to shame is those that refuse to trust in him, they'll spend an eternity in hell. Period. And yet, as Luther said in his large catechism, God uses one knave to discipline another. Sometimes God allows those people who are persecuting the church to suffer shame right here in this world to see the folly of their ways and be ashamed of that as well. The point there is, one of the crosses you're bearing, the devil attacking you, or somebody, a co-worker attacking you because of your faith, leave that to God. Take the prayer to him and know he answers. Know that the Lord hears your prayers. Yes, brothers and sisters in Christ, when God allows crosses to come upon us, one of the things they do is they test us. But God's testing isn't for his knowledge. It's to show us where we're weak. It's to show us, you're, to, to, you know, sometimes we just need to see that we do run to the Lord in prayer in that. So we see when you're weary and you're groaning, know the difference between God's discipline and punishment. He punished Christ for your sin. He disciplines you so that you struggle against the sin. Ask the Lord to save you because of his grace. In grace, he took on flesh. He has saved you. He's removed the barrier that separates you from him. So he hears and answers your prayers. So know that the Lord hears your prayers. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.